Let us pray. Father, speak to us now gospel truth. Speak to us the truth about Your Son and our salvation found in Him. And open our minds and hearts that we might see His beauty and His glory and His majesty. And so put our trust in Him alone. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are looking at the cross in Mark's Gospel. And specifically, we're looking at what the cross reveals to us about God. And even more specifically than that, we are looking at what Jesus' cry of dereliction reveals to us about God. Where Jesus cries out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? The cross certainly is a revelation of God, but the cross is also a miracle and a mystery. Uh, We started last week to peer into some of the mysteries we find at the cross. Uh, Proverbs 25.2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, and to search out a matter is the glory of kings. It's God's glory to conceal things from us. It's our glory, our kingly glory, to to search out those matters. See, in Christ Jesus, we are all kings. It is our glory to search out these mysteries. And so today, let's do our kingly best and see what glory we can find. What glory can we find in the cross? Last week, we looked at some of the mysteries or some of the paradoxes of the cross. Paradoxes like these. Paradoxes like these. God exists as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinity. The Trinity exists in unbreakable love as the three persons share one nature, one love, one life, one will. And yet in some way at the cross, as Jesus cries out, My God, why, my God, why have you forsaken me? In some mysterious way, the unbreakable Trinity was broken open so that sinners could enter into God's triune life. How can the unbreakable Break. How could the Son really be forsaken and the Father really endure the loss of His Son? And yet, Father and Son still remain one at the cross. How can it be? This is a mystery, a paradox. Or here's another paradox, another mystery we touched on last week. Though the Father has always loved and delighted in His Son, and perhaps never more loved and delighted in His Son, more than when He went to the cross in this great act of obedience, in some way the Father also became angry with the Son at the cross and condemned Him as our substitute and our sin-bearer. He numbered His righteous Son with the transgressors so that we transgressors might be numbered with the righteous. But how can this happen? How can God punish the One He loves? How can He be angry with the always and ever-beloved Son? Again, we encounter these paradoxes, these these mysteries at the cross. Or here's one I didn't mention last week, but I think it too is part of the mystery. When Jesus cries out as the forsaken one, he is quoting Psalm 22. We sang a part of it this morning. Psalm 22 is a psalm of David where he has an experience of God's abandonment. It seems in his experience God has abandoned him. And yet we also know that David wrote Psalm 22 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because all Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so somehow, God was with David even when David was abandoned. Think about that. God inspired David to cry out that he had been abandoned by God. And so it is 
with Jesus. God loved Him even when He was angry with Him for our sake. God was with Him even when He was forsaking Him. God was present with Him even when He was absent from Him. God was pleased with Him even when He was pleased to bruise Him. And so the cross is full of intrigue. It's full of mystery. It's full of concealed glory. God calls us to search out. And indeed, the more we learn about God from the cross, the more we realize we really don't know. The more we realize how mysterious God really is. Now last week I focused primarily on the cross as an event within the life of the Trinity. Uh, the cross as a transaction between the Father and the Son. It's an event that takes place within God's triune life. I'll talk about that a little bit more today. But I especially today want to talk about the cross as a revelation of the suffering God and the paradoxes involved in God's suffering. How, we might ask, can the almighty, sovereign, all-powerful God suffer? And if we're going to say God suffered at the cross, as I think we must, what does that mean? See, if Jesus is God, and God and Jesus suffered, then God suffered. But what does it mean to say that? If Jesus is God and Jesus is crucified, then we have to say God was crucified. But what does that mean? What does the cross show us about God's suffering? How can God suffer because of His people and with His people and for His people? But one thing you need to know is that there is a long tradition in the church uh, of uneasiness about all of this. There's actually a, a long tradition in the church that claims God is not capable of suffering. Uh, the word that is often used is the word impassable. Uh, the Greek term passio uh, is the, the term for suffering. And so to say that God is impassable is to say that it is impossible for God to suffer. To say God is impassable is to say God cannot suffer. There is no passion of God. Theologians have argued for God's impassibility in every age of the church. You certainly find this among the church fathers, uh, like Justin Martyr and Irenaeus. Uh, you'll find it among the great medieval theologians like Anselm and Aquinas. Uh, you'll find it at the time of the Reformation with theologians like John Calvin, who's very dear to us. And even our own Presbyterian Westminster Confession of Faith says this about God. This is the living and true God. This is, this is what is confessed in paragraph 2. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. God is without passions, meaning there's some sense in which God cannot suffer. And so you've got the theologians who are making this claim that God is impassable. And yet, on the other hand, the church's artists and poets have not hesitated to give us a God who can suffer. Listen to some of these hymns. And I just pulled these out of our Good Friday bulletin, our, our service from, from Good Friday last year. I just pulled out some of the hymn lyrics. I just want you to listen to some of these. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Christ, the mighty Maker, obviously that's God, died for man the creature's sin. Here's another one. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted. See Him dying on the tree. Tis the Christ by man rejected. Yes, my soul, tis He. Tis the long-expected prophet, David's son. Yet David's Lord 
All these things being sung about are sung about David's Lord. Here, here's another one. O Lamb of God most holy, who on the cross did suffer. Or this one. Thy cross, not mine, O Christ, has borne the awful load of sins that none in heaven or earth could bear but God. So in this hymn, God is the sin bearer, the one who bears the heavy load of sin. Or here's this one, very familiar. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Okay, of course, most famously, we didn't sing this one on Good Friday, but most famously uh, is Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be? Which includes that line, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? The hymn goes on, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies." So there it is, the immortal dying. God dying. Uh, you also find this in Christian art. There's a famous medieval Christian painting uh, called The Pain of God or The Death of God, which depicts Jesus hanging on the cross. And behind Him, the Father, God the Father, is holding up the cross beam and He is gazing down on His Son with an expression of sorrow on His face. And then the Spirit is between the Father and the Son in the form of a dove coming from the heart of the Father upon His Son. And it's really a beautiful picture, really what we talked about last week, what's happening in God's life for those six hours as Jesus is on the cross. But it clearly depicts a God who has opened Himself up to suffering. It clearly presents the cross as an event that, that takes place and that stands inside the life of the Trinity. So who's right? The theologians who say God is impassable or the poets and artists who give us a passable God? Well, the theologians certainly have a very good point. Their point is that God is sovereign and transcendent. And as the sovereign God, He is always infinitely happy in Himself. God has an unshakable, eternal happiness in Himself. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. So there's His transcendence. He's reigning over everything from the heavens. Our God is in the heavens. He does as, he's, as He pleases. God is always pleased. God's always happy. God exists in undisturbed peace and joy. And so the theologians are confessing God can never be victimized or harmed against His will. He can never suffer any loss against His will. He is, in an ultimate sense, invulnerable. He's the transcendent Lord who exists above and outside of His creation, controlling everything that happens according to His eternal plan. And so, no, He cannot be made to suffer. He cannot be forced to suffer. Now, to be fair, the better theologians who have emphasized God's impassibility have still recognized that God has what we might call emotion. Deep from what I just said, you might surmise that joy is an eternal attribute of the Trinity as Father, Son, and Spirit have delighted in each other from all eternity. But given that God freely chose to create... God can now experience other emotions in relation to His creation. And again, the, the church's theological tradition has acknowledged this. The Westminster Confession, I just quoted it, where it says God has no passions. But in that very same paragraph, it goes on to describe God this way. It says God is gracious, merciful, and long-suffering. So the God who has no passions is still in some way a suffering God. He is long-suffering. 
Scripture certainly describes God as having feelings, and so we should as well. We should be able to speak the way Scripture speaks about God. And so actually what we find the theologians mean by impassibility really gets refined and qualified. What passibility means, or what I should say is impassibility, what impassibility means is that there is no passivity in God. God can never be acted on from the outside against His will. And so, yes, God has emotions, varying emotions, a whole range of emotions we find in Scripture, but all of God's emotions are freely chosen. There's no passivity in God. He's never acted on from the outside against His will in some way. God is pure act. And so everything that happens in His creation is under His sovereign rule. It's under His control. Impassibility means God cannot change. God is who He is, infinite in all of His perfections. They can neither be increased nor diminished. And so in Scripture, when we find God's emotions changing and His relationships to His creatures changing, we have to say those changes are always an expression of His unchanging perfections and His unchanging plan. Further, impassibility means that when God does express emotion, He does so in ways that are radically different from human emotions. Certainly human emotions, as God created them, in some way reflect the emotional life of God Himself. We're made in God's image. But there are still all kinds of differences. Uh, there's a creator-creature distinction here that has to be made in the way that we experience our emotions. So as finite creatures and now fallen creatures, our emotions often come over us and overwhelm us whether we want them to or not. Our emotions often have physical manifestation like tears or a queasy stomach. And of course, it's not that way with God. When the Westminster Confession says God does not have a body, parts, or passions, that's what they're ruling out. Further, sometimes we experience sinful emotions, which of course God never does. God never has any feelings of bitterness or envy. God is never compulsive. God's never anxious. When God gets angry, His anger is always perfectly measured. It's perfectly just. I think when we consider God's emotional life in the Scriptures, we have to acknowledge that God's emotional life is infinitely complex. Though God is simple... There's also a sense in which his emotional life is infinitely complex. Just think about this. Think about all the different kinds of prayers that God has to hear at the same time. At the very same moment, he may be hearing prayers for grief, prayers of grief from those who have lost a loved one. Well, at the very same moment, he's hearing prayers of joy and thanksgiving for those who have just had a child. And God is able to empathize with each of His children perfectly at every moment. Okay, I was just talking to somebody yesterday who had both a funeral and a wedding to go to this weekend. And you think about sort of the roller coaster of emotions involved in those two events, even though they're not taking place at the same time. How do you get yourself emotionally where you should be for both of those kinds of events? Okay, well, think about this. God is attending weddings and funerals at the same time constantly. And He is emotionally tuned in, dialed in every single time. God has an infinitely complex emotional life. So all that to say, when the church has confessed that God is impassable, the point is not that God is unfeeling. It's not that He is cold or aloof. Some perhaps have taken it that way. But that's not really the point. The point is this. God is sovereign and free. 
so God only feels what He chooses to feel. He is sovereign, so He cannot be affected or victimized by outside forces. He cannot change in His essential being. And so all of His emotions express His unchangeable perfection. Another way to say this would be to say that God is absolutely transcendent. Again, God exists above and outside of His creation. He's not bound by time or space the way we are. He rules over all of creation as the sovereign, transcendent Lord. And there's a very real sense in which nothing can disturb God's absolute or infinite joy. And that's good news. But... And this is where I think the church's hymn writers and artists and poets come in. I mean, I think everything we've said already kind of hints at what we're going to say about God's emotions and even God's suffering. But the hymn writers and the poets and the artists have something to show us here. Because one of the things that they so often capture in their art is that, yes, Scripture shows us a God who is transcendent. But also, Scripture shows us a God who is imminent. Yes, He's a God who is Lord over all, who exists outside of His creation and reigns over it, but He's also an imminent God who fills His creation, who is active within His creation. He is involved with us. He's engaged with us. You could say even responsive to us. And yes, you can say God even suffers with us and for us. God is a God who weeps with those who weep. He is a God who rejoices with those who rejoice. And I think we have to hold these two truths together. The theologians and the poets are both right. You know, if you only focus on God's transcendence, well, yes, there would be a kind of comfort in that because we know that God is sovereign. And so God has the power to do something about our plight and about our suffering. But we wonder, does God care? Does God even hear our cries? Can He be moved by our cries? Perhaps God is like a doctor who has the medicine to heal us in our sickness, but does He have the compassion to share it with us, to give us the medicine? See, if you only focus on the transcendence of God, then you have to ask, does God really love us? Because love always feels the pain of the Beloved. On the other hand, if God is only imminent, if God is only a God who is near to us, but not a God who is reigning over all of creation as well, well yeah, there'd be a kind of comfort in God's imminence as well. It'd be comforting to know that God in some way shares in our sufferings, but it'd be a real limited comfort because God would be just as stuck in suffering as we are. God could not guarantee a deliverance from suffering, a, a triumph over suffering. There's no guarantee God can get us out of it. There's no guarantee God can get Himself out of it. There's no guarantee God can use our suffering and our pain for good. God would be like a doctor who, yes, comes to treat the patient at his bedside, but gets infected with the same illness, and so he ends up in the bed right next to you. And he might be good company, but that's not a solution to the problem of suffering. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, famously, given how much pain we humans have to endure in this fallen world, Bonhoeffer said, only a suffering God will do. I think that's true. But I want to amend Bonhoeffer here. I would put it this way. We could better say, only a sovereign suffering God will do. A God who, yes, feels our pain and enters into it, but who is also able to triumph over it and deliver us from it. 
A God who is both transcendent and eminent. A God who is outside of creation, ruling over creation, and a God who is in the creation relating to the creation. See, the good news here is that God does not have to protect Himself from suffering precisely because He is suffering. Because He is sovereign. And God enters into our suffering to deliver us from it because He is loving. He can freely choose to enter into our suffering in love because He is powerful enough to overcome it. And that's good news. But I think there's a lot more that we can say about God's suffering. You know, it's interesting, even before we get to the incarnation and the cross, which is where really where all of this comes to a pinnacle, even before that, in the Old Testament Scriptures, the Old Testament already shows us a God who has sovereignly chosen to open Himself up to suffering with and for His people. And so, for example, in Genesis chapter 6, we find God sorrowing, God grieving over human sin. He's sorry He made man because men have turned to violence. It's actually there you could say suffering because of the sins of His creatures. In Exodus 2 and 3, we find God sharing in the sufferings of His people as they have been enslaved in Egypt. This is how it's described. God says, I have seen the affliction of My people You might think, well, that just means he sees it, perhaps from a distance. But then God goes on to say, I know their suffering. The way that word know is used, it describes experience. God is right there suffering with them in their slavery. This same kind of truth is echoed in Isaiah 63.9 where God says, in their affliction, I was afflicted. God looks at His people as they're suffering affliction and He enters into their affliction. He enters into our situation and makes it His own. Or you have Hosea 11, which we read this morning. There God is surveying Israel's unfaithfulness. And as God looks at how unfaithful Israel has been, God's heart breaks. And God says, how can I give you up, Israel? My compassion grows warm and tender. This is a God who's been jilted by His beloved. His beloved Israel, His bride Israel. He feels the sting of Israel's rejection. It really hurts. But then God's going to keep on loving anyway, even when it hurts. He's not going to give up on Israel. He's going to keep pursuing her. And of course, we find this same truth when we come to the New Testament. We find, for example, that God's Spirit can be grieved in Ephesians 4. In Romans 8, we find the Spirit groaning inside of us as we struggle with the fallenness of the world all around us. Throughout Scripture, again and again, we find a God who suffers. A God who suffers when His people don't reciprocate His love. A God who suffers when His people are suffering because of the fallenness of the world. And indeed, Scripture shows us this is why God can be trusted in the midst of suffering. It's precisely because God Himself has firsthand experience of suffering. And so we want to know, where is God when it hurts? And the Bible says God's right there in the midst of the hurting, hurting with you. Of course, all of this that we see elsewhere in Scripture feeds into our understanding of what happened at the cross. God's Son, the incarnate Son, and the suffering He endured there. G.K. Chesterton said the whole point of Christian theology is that pain is so real, even God Himself has experienced it. He says if you take away the pain from the Gospel story, it becomes a pointless story. 
See, a God who's not sovereign couldn't deliver us from suffering, but a God who's not imminent and loving and willing to enter into our suffering, a God who can't suffer in any way, is a God who can't truly love us. And a God who can't truly love us is a God who can't be trusted or loved in return. A God who cannot suffer is a God who cannot redeem us from suffering. The whole theme of the suffering of God really comes to a culmination at the cross. I think that's obvious. There at the cross, God in human flesh experienced the curse of death. Jesus Christ has two natures, divine and human, united in His one person. And as the incarnate Son... All of his experiences as a man are truly also the experiences of God. And I think the real mystery and miracle of the cross is found here. The immortal God chose to die a human death. The impassable God suffers His own curse. What Christ suffered and felt were truly suffered and felt by God Himself. Good Friday is the day the Sovereign God in the person of His Son bled and died in human flesh. Indeed, we can say God became man precisely for this reason so He could suffer and die a human death and thereby redeem us. He became incarnate so He could be torturable and deniable and killable, crucifiable, for in this way He would redeem us. On the cross, God died. Amazing love, how can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Now, I understand that that formula, that phrasing, God died or or God crucified, uh, that often throws people off. It, It just sounds wrong to say that. And of course, if we don't want to be misunderstood, we have to unpack it, what it means. But I also want you to see that language is the language of the Bible. And again and again, it's the language of the Christian tradition. And so, for example, 1 Corinthians 2 says they crucified the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory was crucified. In Acts 20, Paul says the church was purchased with God's own blood. One of the early church theologians, Ignatius, called the cross the passion of the impassable God. Another church father, Cyril, said, He who as God transcends suffering suffered humanly in the flesh. Cyril liked to use formulations like this. The Word was made flesh as a helpless baby in a manger. He made a big deal about how Mary was the God-bearer. God was born of Mary. And then he would go on to say things like this. The Word was made flesh and then suffered and died on the cross. Or as another in the early church put it, one of the Trinity was crucified for us. This is the Orthodox faith. This is how Christians talk about God. This is the Christian way to talk about God. The Incarnation made it possible for God to suffer the human death our sins deserve. Consider the Nicene Creed. You know, the Nicene Creed is three paragraphs. We we confess the Nicene Creed every week, so that's familiar to you. The Nicene Creed is three paragraphs, one devoted to each person of the Trinity. Think about that second paragraph about the Son. You get to the middle of that paragraph and it uses verbs like this. Crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. Suffered and was buried. 
we want to ask, who is the subject of those verbs? We'll go back to the top of the paragraph. Who is the subject of those verbs? Crucified, suffered, and buried. The one who is the only begotten Son of God. Begotten of the Father before all worlds. God of God. Light of light. Very God of very God. You see what the creed is saying. The one who is very God of very God was crucified, suffered, and buried. That's the Christian faith. That's the heart of the Gospel. The Nicene Creed has been the plumb line of Christian orthodoxy, the, the, the touchstone of the true Christian faith for 1,700 years. And you cannot confess Nicaea without confessing that the impassable God suffered in Jesus Christ. The incarnate Son of God, the One who is very God of very God, light of light, in human form, in human flesh, suffered and died for us on the cross. And what this means is that the cross shows us the truth about God. This is God's supreme unveiling of Himself. His supreme revelation. The cross shows us what God is really like. God is most godlike, if I can put it that way, on the cross. And this is just the thing that has always given the church's enemies such difficulty. Arius, who is, who is really the arch enemy of the faith in the early church, argued Arius argued Jesus could not be fully God because He suffered. And we all know God can't suffer. God's too great to suffer, so Jesus can't be God. That's how he argued against the deity of Christ. But the church, on the basis of Scripture, Jesus' own witness and the apostolic testimony fought back against Arius and said, no, God has become a man precisely so He can suffer for us. And this is the amazing grace of the Gospel that God entered into our humanity and died our death in our place to redeem us. And if Jesus is less than God, then His sufferings cannot redeem us. His sufferings are not salvific and we're still left in our sins because no perfect sacrifice has been offered. The church said Jesus and the apostles are clear. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is God become man. He is God crucified for our salvation. That is the Christian Gospel. Now why does any of this really matter? Why does this theology matter? Why does it matter that we get this? Well, there's a lot of reasons, and I'm not going to go into uh, all of them, of course, but I just want to point a few things out to you. Martin Luther once said, the cross is the test of everything. The cross is the test of everything. That means the cross is certainly the test of our Christian lives, but the cross is also the test of our understanding of who God is. You know, one thing you hear in our world today, in our culture so often, is people will say things like this. All religions are really the same. We just have different names for God, but we're really all worshiping the same being, right? And they'll talk about how there are different paths up the same mountain to the top of the hill, and we'll all meet there at the top, and supposedly then recognize that all these theological things we were fighting over and what we should call God and what God's really like, we all actually were worshiping the same higher being after all. The cross puts an end to all of that nonsense because it shows us a very different God than you're going to find in any other religion or any other philosophy or any other worldview. To say God is like Jesus is not only to make a huge claim about Jesus, it is to make an astounding claim about God. The centurion 
who we meet in Mark 15, the passage we read, gets this. In fact, he may have been the very first to get it. When he saw the way Jesus died, he confessed, surely this man was the Son of God. Now this is really what Mark's Gospel is all about. It's all about getting us to make this confession that the centurion makes here. Mark opens his Gospel saying, this is the Gospel of the Son of God. That's what this is about. The Gospel of the Son of God. And then that declaration of Jesus' identity as the Son of God is repeated by God the Father at those high points in the Gospel, at Jesus' baptism, and then again at His transfiguration. Demons seem to get it in Mark's Gospel. They recognize He's the Son of the Most High. But no human makes that confession, that full confession of Jesus' identity as the Son of God. No human makes that confession until... Jesus dies on the cross. Miracles didn't do it. The teachings didn't do it. It's the cross that does it. And you have this Gentile, this Roman centurion, he's the first human to make this full confession of Jesus' identity as God's Son. And this is what's so fascinating. This is the the glory that's been concealed now breaking open. How does the centurion arrive at that conclusion? It's not because of any miracle Jesus performed. In fact, the mockers, looking up at Jesus as He hangs on the cross, asked for a miracle so they could believe. They said, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, then come down from the cross. That's how you can prove to us you're God's Son. Not by getting crucified, but by coming off of the cross. But see, they totally miss what it means for Jesus to be Son of God. It's precisely because He is the Son of God that He stays on the cross. And that's what leads the centurion to His confession. This centurion is most likely the one who drove the very nails in Jesus' hands and feet. And this centurion, no doubt, had seen hundreds of crucifixions before. He knew what it was like to see a man hang on a cross and suffer and finally die. But this time, it was different. This man, this suffering, this cross, this death was unique. This man died as only God could. This man died as the Son of God. He died a sovereign sufferer. It was clear to this centurion that in the case of Jesus, His life was not taken from Him. He laid it down of His own accord. His death was an act of power. He died not as a victim, but as a king. He died as the Son of God. He died in humble, sacrificial love and His death unveiled God. Because just as Jesus dies, the temple veil is torn from top to bottom. And behind that veil in the temple, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And that means that's where the Shekinah glory of God dwells. That means the glory of God is being unveiled as Jesus dies on the cross. But how do we find that glory? Where do we see that glory revealed? It's on the cross. We see the glory revealed in the crucifixion of Jesus. We see God's glory unveiled in the crucified Son. I think what happens with the centurion here is a lot like what happens with Doubting Thomas, as he's known unfairly, uh, at the end of John's Gospel. You might remember 
Jesus rose from the dead. He appeared to several of his disciples, but Thomas was not there for the resurrection party, so he misses seeing Jesus. And the other apostles, they say, we have seen the Lord, but Thomas is the doubter, and Thomas wants proof. And so he says, I'm not going to believe that our friend Jesus, that the man Jesus is risen from the dead unless I get to see it with my own eyes and touch it with my own hands. I've got to see the nail prints in his hands. And I've got to put my hand in his side where he was wounded. Well, Jesus comes and meets with Thomas on the next Lord's Day, the next first day of the week. And when Thomas sees Jesus, what does he confess? He does not merely say what the empirical evidence suggests. Yes, the man Jesus is resurrected. No, he exclaims, my Lord and my God. He suddenly puts all the pieces of the puzzle together. He confesses Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is truly God's greatest and fullest revelation. And the cross and resurrection of Jesus prove He's God and they show us what God is like. See, this is the key thing. The scars of Jesus reveal who He is as the Son of God. The death of Jesus reveals who He is as the Son of God. Those are the lessons from the centurion and from Thomas. What's happening at the cross? The cross is just the eternal sacrificial love of God made public. It's God showing us what He's always been like. God is putting on display for all the world to see His deepest and truest Self, Because see, the three persons of the Trinity have lived together in an, an, an eternal circle of self-sacrificing love. On the cross, Jesus just shows us what God is like on the inside. It's God turning His own life inside out. And as I said last week, doing so in such a way that now sinners can be brought into that divine life. Think about John's Gospel, which is so rich with these truths. John 15, 9 Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. In other words, Jesus is saying His sacrificial love for His disciples is patterned after His Father's sacrificial love for Him. He goes on a few verses later, John 15, 13, He says, there is no greater love than this that one lay down His life for His friends. Well, where did Jesus learn to love in this way? It must have been ultimately from His Father. Elsewhere in John's Gospel, Jesus says things like this, if you have seen Me, you've seen the Father. So the way Jesus lives reveals the Father to us. He says, I only do what I see My Father doing. He says, I and the Father are one. Everything Jesus does, including the cross, shows us what God is like. Everything Jesus does, including His death, shows us the Father. And so what do we learn about God at the foot of the cross, the cross reveals God as a humble, serving God. The God who reigns by serving. The God who is the sovereign sufferer. Indeed, I find it so interesting. All through John's Gospel, you find this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit serving and glorifying one another. The Son glorifies the Father by saying things like this, the Father is greater than I. But the Father in turn glorifies the Son because Jesus says in John 17, Father, glorify Your Son as Your Son glorifies You. Father and Son are giving glory to each other. And the Spirit gets in on this act as well. Jesus glorifies the Spirit when He says things like this. He says, it's good for Me to go away because then the Spirit will come. 
In other words, it's better if you have the Spirit than to have me. He's glorifying the Spirit. But what does the Spirit do when the Spirit comes? John 16.14 tells us the Spirit comes to glorify the Son, to shine the light of His glory on Jesus. So when Jesus comes to us as a humble servant, He is simply doing what God always does. This is how God lives His triune life from all eternity. And God goes public with it at the cross. I think this is what Jesus is getting at in Mark chapter 10 when He says He came to serve. Not to be served, but to serve. That word to serve there, when Jesus says He came to serve, it's a word that really means to wait on people. That's what God in the flesh came to do. God in the flesh came to be your busboy so you could sit at the Father's table and feast. Jesus is waiting on you hand and foot at the table serving you. That's the Gospel. That's the good news. It's good news that God is like this. Now think about this. Let me close with this. This is what God is like. God is transcendent. And imminent. God is the sovereign sufferer who enters into our pain, not because He has to, but freely because He wants to, out of love, to deliver us out of our pain. This is a God of love who gives Himself sacrificially. This is a God who doesn't hoard glory, but unveils glory in order to share it. This is a God who is humble, a God who is a servant, a God of compassion and kindness, a God who is just and good and wise. This God is a fountain of joy and desires to share His joy with us. If God's like all of that, aren't you drawn to this God? Don't you find something compelling and magnetic about this God? something incredibly beautiful and attractive. Don't you want to know Him and love Him and worship Him and serve Him and imitate Him in all the ways a creature can? If this is who God is? Psalm 115 gives us an axiom of life. It says we become like what we worship. See, we are always being remade in the image of our God. We become mere reflections of whatever we worship. And so if you worship a God of power, a God of raw power, you're going to become a power-hungry tyrant yourself. But on the cross, we find a God who is humble, a God who is compassionate, a God who sacrifices, a God who loves, a God who gives, and a God who forgives even His enemies. And those who worship Him become like Him. The cross is the test of everything. You know you are worshiping this God if you're becoming like Him, if you are growing in self-giving love. And so with your neighbors, if your neighbors were asked to just derive your theology from the way you live your life, would they get from how you've lived your life to this kind of God? Husbands and fathers would... Your family members say this must be the kind of God you worship, a God of self-giving love because they see how you live and act in your home. What you believe about God matters. Among Jesus' last words are these that we call the cry of dereliction. He cries out because He is suffering for others. But we know from Luke's Gospel, He also let out a plea for forgiveness. He looks down on His crucifiers and He doesn't say to hell with you. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. By contrast, Muhammad's last words were, may Allah curse the Jews and Christians. 
God you worship matters. Allah and Jesus are very different kinds of gods. Jesus dies bearing a curse for His enemies. Muhammad dies pronouncing a curse on His enemies. What we believe about God matters. It shapes us. Who are you worshiping? On the cross, we see a God dying to save those who are killing Him. He's returning evil with good. Hatred with love. God is like Jesus, which means God is cruciform. And if you worship this God, people will know because you're being made like Him. The cross is the test of everything. If you worship this God, you're going to be loving and serving and giving and forgiving. You're going to be humble and sacrificial. Worship the God of the cross and you'll live a cruciform life. Worship God crucified and you will live a cruciform life. Augustine once said, how can it be God has humbled Himself and yet still man is proud? Or perhaps Martin Luther put it best, no other God have I but Thee, born in a manger, die on a tree. Let's pray together. Thank You, Lord, for being a God who is sovereign and a God who suffers. You suffer because of us, because of our sin. You suffer with us and You suffer for us. And in Your sovereignty, You lift us out of our suffering and You bring us to glory through our suffering. Do this for us, God. Show us this compassion and make us a compassionate people for Your sake. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.